Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Drive Nation Podcast with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel. We're going to start episode 37 of the Drive Nation Podcast with a shout out to Mick Humphreys. Hello, Mick Humphreys, and thank you for your suggestion for this week's podcast. Um, Before we get stuck in, it's also worth saying, if anybody else has an idea for a podcast, let us know. Just leave a comment or send us a message through Instagram or through our personal Twitter accounts, whatever it is. Send some ideas in, and like we're doing with Mick Humphreys' idea, we might well uh, pick up yours and chat about it for an hour. Um, Now, Andrew... By way of sort of introduction into this episode, can you remind us how Drive Nation's new car rating system works? Yeah, I mean, uh, Nick's idea was that we should do a podcast on the cars that would have got 10 out of 10 on Drive Nation if Drive Nation had existed at the time they came out. Um, and as people who follow Drive Nation will mainly know, uh, we've only ever given one car 10 out of 10 because our rating system is slightly different to everybody else's. Um, so from our point of view, um, if a car is really, really good, that's kind of like an 8 out of 10. Um, if it's class leading, literally the best of its kind that there is, that's not a 10, that's a 9. To be a 10 out of 10 car, you've got to move the goalpost, change the rules. You've got to be a bit of a game-changing car. And that is why the Alpine A110 um, got 10 out of 10, because it was a car that just tried to be different and not only tried, but did it very successfully. There are lots of cars that aren't 10 out of 10 cars, which do um, try to do it differently, but you know fall over themselves or don't do it quite well enough. So it's got to be you know the best at what it does and move the game on sufficiently to be regarded as a kind of new way of doing it or a revisiting a way of doing something that hasn't been done in a long time, that sort of thing. I think really all I'm saying is just being the best in its class at what it does here and now, not enough for a 10. Uh, and that's why I think people wonder why we just don't give these things out. Um, you know, one in two and a half years, not exactly. That's uh, kind of Halley's comment type, comment type frequency, isn't it? Um, but uh, I think we stand by it because otherwise, how do you recognise? I mean, they're, they're rare. I mean, yeah, we're going to talk about 10 of them today, um, you know, from the history of the car. Um, but these cars do pop along. And when they do, how else other than having that extra bit of space 
at the top of your ratings. How else do you recognise that fact? Yeah, that actually you've put it really well there. I suppose there are two elements fundamentally, aren't there? It has to, a car has to be utterly brilliant. That's a given. It has to be really bloody good. But it also has to break new ground or move the game on. Um, so those are the two components that we're looking for. Um, and it, the reason Mick's idea was a good one is that uh, by, by picking out some cars from the past that we would have awarded 10 out of 10 ratings to, we can give our system some context and hopefully help people understand what it is that we're looking for. Um, now, if it, I'm looking at our list now, and I mean, they're just some of the uh, sort of most iconic cars of you know, in history. Um, and I think when we run through it, people will begin to understand that what we're looking for as we review these cars and consider whether or not they're worthy of a 10 out of 10, um, we're looking for the cars that in future will just be recognised as exactly. game changers, as exactly the right. iconic cars. Yes. You yeah, know, worthy of, worthy of that list. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, sort of a, it's a hallowed group, isn't it? It's a bunch of very, very special cars. And th- those are the cars we're looking for. What, what we're doing effectively is trying to look into the future with these cars. If we give something a 10 out of 10, what we're actually saying is, this isn't just a great car now, this is a great car, you know, and in 50 years' time, people will be looking back as we are looking back today, and we'll look back at whatever the car is and think, yeah, that's one of the greats. That's one of the greats from the history of the car. So it basically it transcends um, the time that we're in and, 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 and gets a whole new historical perspective. And that inevitably means that it's quite a rare event, us giving a 10 out of 10. But I think that's okay. And I think that, you know, when we do give a car a 10, it should be an event. It should be an occasion. Um, And one thing to sort of address, I want to ask you this question, Andrew. Is a 10 out of 10 perfect and faultless? No, I don't think so, because it's um, there's no such thing, is there? I've never driven a perfect car. I've never driven a faultless car. I don't imagine that I ever will. Apart from Um, the LPN A110. Sorry, <laughs> I give you your digital radio reception um, and, and, and your luggage space and your interior. And, and, no, I, don't get me going. Um, no, it can't be, can it? I mean, you know, it'd be awful, wouldn't it? Can you imagine somebody made a perfect car, a car that was beyond credit? We, we, we'd all basically have to retire on the spot because we couldn't do our jobs anymore. So, no, I, I don't believe that there has been a perfect car. I don't believe that there will be a perfect car. Um, so, no, it doesn't have to be perfect, but it does have to, as we have said, um, be something else again good okay um now i'm looking at our list and there are some new cars on there or newish uh there are some small and affordable cars there are there's obviously some exotica on there um some of them are in fact looking at all of them are older obviously than drive nation most are old maybe all on the list actually are older than instagram some are older than digital publishing and one or two are older than both of us so there were ones that even older than me. It's hard to believe. Well, I know only a couple. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, so we've got some good variety on there. Is the point? So let's get started with number one in our list of ten cars that are rated ten out of ten. Yeah, uh, ten, 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 ten. Um, so the first one we've got, and I think it probably demonstrates this car that we're not just looking for fearsomely quick cars that you know and the latest and greatest technologies we're looking for innovation and uh, being very well suited to a task and that's why the original mini is on our list yeah it's interesting isn't it um 
I'm not actually, I mean, I, I, I like old minis. Uh, I really do. But, you know, the fact that I don't have one, but I do have, you know, an old Fiat 500 in my shed, uh, it, just, it just shows that these judgments are, you know, they have to be quite, well, they have to be both subjective and, and objective. And I absolutely objectively recognise that the mini did change the game. Um, it changed the game because, well, I mean, it just, the, the packaging of the car, the fact that it, you know, basically what it did was it was the first car to, it wasn't by any means the first front-wheel drive car, um, but it was the first car that kind of perfected front-wheel drive. Uh, it had, for instance, uh, most importantly, it had uh, constant velocity joints uh, instead of universal joints in its front drive shafts, which meant you no longer got a torque reaction through the steering wheel when you turned it. Um, and as anybody who's driven a very old Citroen, which we'll be getting to, I imagine, at some stage, uh, will know, um, you know, these, though they are flawed cars. And yet with the Mini, you had a car which, you know, not only perfected front-wheel drive, but made front-wheel drive really, really good fun. Um, you had a car which was absolutely tiny. You know, they had 10-inch wheels. And yet you really could get four people into them um, because they were so clever um, in the way that that they were packaged. And... You know, they rattled along well enough. And, you know, you have to remember that, you know, this was a car that went on sale in 1959. And you've got to kind of think about the kind of cars that it, you know, that would have come before. And it was kind of almost a sort of like a Model T Austin 7 moment, wasn't it? It was a car that just, it didn't bring motoring to the masses, but it brought reliable, fun affordable motoring um in a form that we hadn't seen before um and you know that's why it stayed in production for whatever it was 40 odd years the legacy is a factor isn't it It was on sale for so long um and also it has a special place in many people's hearts and bmw recognized the, the currency in that mini brand and look at what they're doing with it today um i mean this was this, this was a car that was well i mean it was amazingly successful in uh, in racing, it should have won the Monte Carlo Rally four times on the trot if the French hadn't nicked the 1966 uh, event. Because I think, what are they thrusting it out for? Having the wrong light bulbs in it, I think. Something silly. Um, and surprise, surprise, a Citroen won it. Anyway, um, you know, this car was a film star. Uh, it was a fashion icon. It, it, it went so far beyond um, what it was originally intended for. Uh, and all that just goes to show the genius of the, of the original design. People are still racing them today. Um, there's a huge community built up around them. It's just a very special little car, isn't it? Um, yeah. I, so, hang on. Do you love driving them, then? Interesting. <laughs> um, no, I don't love driving them. Um, I, 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 I know that lots of people do, um, and it probably says much more about me than the Mini. Uh, I've never quite got them, if I'm honest with you. I've never... Um, Somebody once did threaten to let me race their racing mini, and I'm sure a racing mini would be something else. And I, I, I do like the sort of go-kart steering, and I do love the sort of relentless enthusiasm to them. Um, but I don't, know, I don't really know why. I have often thought about why I prefer old Fiat 500s and 2CVs and all that sort of rubbish to, to minis. Um, and, you know, as a motoring journalist, just saying, well, I just do, probably isn't much of an answer, but I just do. Um, <laughs> So okay, well, I think I think it, fair, it it demonstrates, doesn't it, that we're this isn't just about us and the cars we love. We're we're trying to be a bit more grown up about it and little bit recognise, uh, yeah, inherent virtues. So, okay, you said you haven't necessarily clicked with the original Mini, although we recognise it as a groundbreaking car. I know there is a car that you have clicked with, 
And you mentioned old Citroens. So tell us about uh, the 2CV. <laughs> Can we have an 11 out of 10 car? No. That's like the people on The Apprentice who say, I will give it 184%. I was, I was talking, um, there's, there, there's a bloke um, who comes down once a year, just looks over my car just to make sure it's all right. And he comes over, he looks at it over and, and always sort of says, well, I don't know why you asked me. It's fine. Um, because the things just never go wrong. Uh, but we were discussing why the 2CV is not, I mean, everybody knows what they are, but it just doesn't, I don't think, have the love out there. Whereas the Mini undoubtedly does, certainly in the UK. Uh, and maybe being British is part of that. Um, but to me, a 2CV, given that it is effectively a pre-war design, um, it's, it, it is just so, more than anything else, it is just so astonishingly clever. It is so light. It is so spacious. It is how, how so... Light? How light? Oh, what, 550, 600 kilos? And yet it's got... It's not like a Mini where you can kind of get four people in it. You know, four people are rolling around inside a 2CV. <laughs> and you can take the front seats out and the back seats out in literally a matter of seconds. And you can roll the roof all the way back. It's a fully convertible car. Um, they are utterly charming to drive. You know, this, you know, a, a car like that, um, you know, immediately up before or after the war in the early 1950s was fully independent suspension. And um, not just independent suspension, but independent interactive suspension. I mean, you know, whatever this was, you know, uh, 60 years before, you know, McLaren started doing it. And it's, you know, they're, they're, okay, they're not the same system by any means, but, you know, you can see how they are, uh, they have things in common. Uh, and you just get in them, and uh, all I can say um, is that I have never found it possible to be behind the wheel of one of those things and unhappy at the same time. It just doesn't happen. They're just they're just wonderful, magical things. And I would always say to you that the 1950s cars, uh, the AZs as they call them, and the 60s cars, the 425, are the ones which have the largest amount of charm because they are the most rubbish. Um, although their cars did get a bit simpler and they did change and they became a bit more mass produced in later years but actually do you know what if you just get in a sort of a 1980s you know absolutely bog standard 602 cc dolly um you know you'll you'll see you will understand what i'm banging on about um they're just they're just they're such clever cars and they're such charming cars and i I just feel lucky to have one i really do and they're not expensive Oh, um, and you can you can go and buy some restored show pony, but you know, and spend twenty grand on it. But why would you? Um, for a few thousand pounds, you can just go and buy a car, which will put a smile on your face every time uh, you get in it, and you'll never ever lose your license driving it. People will think we're being sentimental, won't they? Well, it is that kind of car, though, isn't it? Um, you know, it's not a car that you buy for you know gimlet-eyed objective. You know, I've got this particular job I need to do. It's a pub car, isn't it? It's just a car. You know, it's a it's it's a it's a car for rolling back the roof and heading off somewhere with your family on a sunny day um and you know not without a care in the world it's 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 one of those cars and it's uh, and and it's just all the better for it okay so rural france if we were reviewing the car in context um what what were the virtues what aspects of it would make you think wow this is spectacularly good at what it's supposed to do it's a 10 um price space comfort fun i mean they handle brilliantly i mean i know it's ridiculous because everybody sees these things you know falling over going around corners and that sort of thing but that's not how they feel because they've got you know a flat twin engine in them 
and basically everything above the waistline is made out of biscuit tins. The centre of gravity is absolutely on the deck. Um, and you know, combination of that very, very low CFG and the fully independent suspension, they just handle and ride incredibly. Uh, I will um, divulge a little element of... Yeah, I'm sure people listening to this um, will know that Chris Harris has one of these things too, and I think lots of you will know that we had a race um for the mission motorsport charity recently um and we had the full video uh it looks ridiculously good and it will get posted very soon um but in the meantime what i will say is that driving across a field which and you know by no means a smooth field in these cars it was like being in an s-class mercedes you could not believe how comfortable these cars were driving across a field at 30 or 40 miles an hour they're just they're just brilliant uh, and I think we, we're going to we're going to time out if we if, if I spend this long on on each one. But yeah, mega mega. Car. If you've never driven a two CV, uh, I know quite a few people drive them and are absolutely horrified and, and can't imagine why anybody would ever want to do anything like that ever again. But if you get the chance, just do it because if the bug bites, it stays bit. I feel quite pleased that we're now going to spend less time talking about the third car on the list, given what it is, than. The Citroen oh, 2 CV. We're a broad that's what church, you've done, nothing That's else. what you've done, isn't it? You've sold me, you've got me to bang on about the 2 CV. So I, I can't spend much time talking about what is actually the best car in the world, namely the Ferrari F40. Wow, big claim. Yeah, F40. I think we've spoken about the F40 a bit, haven't we? So we don't need to do 10 minutes on this car. Um, but it's, you've just declared it the best car in the world. Are you Best you road car that? I've driven. Greatest, no, not best, no, best is the wrong word. Greatest road car I've driven, yeah. And I, I went through a little phase, and I've talked about this before, where it was the LaFerrari. And, I, and, you know, and it is absolutely not because these things are Ferraris, um, as I'm sure people who, you know, read and listen to what I, you know, write and say will know. Um, but, yeah, I mean, if you want to be, you know, we love road cars, don't we? we? We just love cars. And why do we love them? We love driving them. We love, we love it because they make us feel free, that we find them exciting. There is no car which will make you more excited or make you feel more free than if you are let loose on a decent public road in an F40. The, the focus of the car, the fact that it is dedicated to doing one thing only, and that is to make your hair stand on end. The noise, the speed, the intimacy of the car, the, the feel that you get from it, it's lightness. I mean, I, I just, honestly, I just sit here, I just think, I need to go, I need to go and drive. I just, I just, um, what can I say? Uh, if, if, if you are lucky enough ever to even be a passenger of one, and I know that very, very few people are, and many people listening to this will go, well, it's all right for you, you know, you've driven a few. Um, but I can only report as I find, and I, and I have. And, you know, I've driven many thousands of other cars, some of them amazing, but none of them. Um, some kind of get into my head and I think oh god could this be the one to finally supplant the F40 and sometimes like with the LaFerrari I might even think gosh maybe it's done it and then a year or two further down the line they go nah it's the F40 um and it just is um and yeah I can't I can't really imagine that now it's ever going to be anything else um not even our next car yeah not even our next car um okay well once again we've covered this one a bit haven't we on the Drive Nation podcast before I think probably not for some time so we can do a little bit more on this one. Um, so how much did the McLaren F1 move the supercar, hypercar game on in the early 90s? By more than any other car in the history of the car. Ooh. It is as simple. It, 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 no, it is. It, it, is, it, is simply, it is as simple as that. 
um, and you only have to look at the at the stats um, to know it. Uh, I mean, before that, I mean, the XJ220 did just sneak in before that. But even compared to the XJ220, if you look at, I mean, obviously, you know, you've got the power, what is it, 627 horsepower compared to 542. And you've got the weight, 1164 horse, uh, kilograms compared to, I don't know what a 220 weighs. I would think about 1400, something like that. Um, but then, you know, it's, it's the other stuff, actually. It's the fact that it casts the same shadow as a 911. It's the fact you can put three people in it. It's the fact you can stick your luggage in it. You, it, it and, and it's all that stuff. It's the fact that it's, uh, it was far and away. I mean, it, it was. It, it, it needed a class to itself. It was so much quicker than anything else out there. And yet it did all that. And it was quiet and it was comfortable and it was civilised and it was like... I mean, it was... You know, they, We talked at the beginning, didn't we, about what makes a 10 out of 10 car. Um, and I said, it's got to be a game changer. And I'm not sure... I know another car that changed its game as much as the F1 did. Um, and maybe the Valkyrie or the AMG 1 might do it to the same extent. Maybe Gordon Murray's car will. I mean, until we drive them, we won't know. But certainly of the cars that I have driven, of the cars that I've come to know, uh, not the hypercars, not the LaFerrari mob, it was the F1 which advanced the art of the ultra-high-performance road car far further and faster than anything else I've known before or since. So what were the specific breakthroughs with that car is it light weighting is it the carbon construction uh, yeah, is I it mean, just it, is it, it raw performance yeah it was the way all those things came together isn't it it's 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 no one thing i mean you know 627 horsepower it doesn't sound like that much these days does it but i mean it was the most powerful production car in the world um at the time but it was that married to the fact that it was in a car that weighed 1164 kilos Married to the fact that it was in a car that would seat three people, not two. Married to the fact that you could, could actually take your luggage. Married to the fact that it cast the same shadow as a 911. It was all these things that came together into just this, you know, for one car to be better than another in, you know, a couple of ways is quite impressive. But ultimately, you know, that's progress. That's what, you know, that's what happens. But for a car to come along and basically make everything else that had tried to do that job that had come before look pretty silly. Um, yeah, and it did, you know. I, 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 I've enjoyed driving, you know, XG220s and EB110s and all that kind of crazy stuff. But, I mean, as an achievement, I mean, they're, they're just not in the same postcode as an F1. So I, I know you relatively recently found yourself back behind the wheel of one. Um, can, yeah. we, can we just do 30 seconds on what a McLaren F1 is like to drive nowadays what do you just what do you find what do you feel uh what do you feel uh so outrageous performance still absolutely you know this is a car did not 60 in 3.2 not 106.3 on what are by today's standards concrete tires with a manual gearbox and no launch control yeah so imagine what it would have done if it had the um advantages that all modern cars like that um take completely for granted um so still absolutely phenomenal performance and obviously of course it's got a normally aspirated v12 um, engine and also one of the finest v12s that's ever been built so the noise is just you know off all known scales i mean modern cars very sadly um just don't sound like that anymore i mean even something like an 812 superfast one of the very last normally aspirated v12s sounds unbelievable but it doesn't quite have that manic edge to it that that bmw engine 
had. Um, handling, I mean, they're, they're kind of eight, by modern standards, they're kind of eight-tenths cars. Uh, they feel very soft, which is why they ride. Um, but you do get the impression, and obviously this was somebody else's, I mean, it was the prototype I drove, so it was, we, we insured it for £25 million, so I wasn't <laughs> going to go skidding it about the place. But you got the impression, um, and I remember it at the time, of thinking that you didn't really want to get let this get too far away from you because if it got too far, it, you know, it, it it would keep going, and you know, and people did have big accidents in in F ones, um, but you know that was countered by this beautiful supple ride quality. I think the only area in which it was deficient um, and, and and feels utterly so today is, is is the brakes the brakes were i think we probably i think i probably described them as adequate for the level of performance at the time um but these days no i mean you know it, it, it is terribly under braked um you know and there are things you can do you can put bigger wheels on it which means you can put bigger discs behind it and even with the standard wheels you can get much better uh disc and pad material now um but yeah no the brakes are the only thing but it, it does feel quite vintage and you know i sound slightly surprised but it's uh whatever it is it's a 26 year old car now so so it should um but for raw excitement it's still right up there definitely um okay and all modesty aside for a moment and just as an aside can you explain why those f1 performance figures are etched into your memory well, uh, because uh, I did them, uh, I was there at Bruntingthorpe, um, but you know, but there's there, there's nothing particularly clever about that. In fact, I did some, and Jonathan Palmer did some, um, and because we had to do it at two separate locations, because um, Millbrook was where we'd normally go, we couldn't do 200 miles an hour, uh, and we desperately wanted to do 200 miles an hour. So we actually did half the figures at Bruntingthorpe and half the figures at Millbrook and we stitched them together. Um, but nevertheless, you know, talking, if you like, departmentally, um, those are the figures uh, of the auto car official road test. It was the only road test that McLaren ever allowed of that car. Um, it was, you know, the culmination of a two year campaign by the staff of auto car to make sure that we were the only people um, who would test that car and those figures have become the official you know journal of record and you know and that, that's a fact of which we were all intensely proud at the time um, and i remain so to this day uh so did mclaren have any target times for you or did, did they have their own figures or no, did they just no, they didn't have a clue on? they literally didn't have a clue it wasn't that imp- you know if, well it, you know they wanted to do it um clearly because they wouldn't have turned up if they didn't but you know it was it wasn't their first second or third priority um they just wanted to make the world's greatest driver's car and then, having done that, they thought, oh, it'd be interesting to find out how fast it'll actually go. They had no target times. Well, I mean, don't forget, it was, I think it was 1990, we figured it in May 94. I don't think it was until 1998 that they bothered to find out what its top speed was. Mm. Just wasn't yeah, really were, a factor, was it, to them? It wasn't no, that important. It wasn't. No, they, they just wanted to make a great driver's car, and it, did, and it did what it did. You know, they wanted to make it incredibly powerful, and they wanted to make it incredibly light. And the numbers would just sort of look after themselves, um, which they did. And they, you know, but and and they are what they are. But um, no, they 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 didn't have any kind of benchmarks or targets um, for us. We just turned up there and we strapped on the gear, and it did what it did. I haven't checked recently what you'll need to spend to pick up a McLaren F1. Do you reckon twenty million quid, something like that? Uh, no, I wouldn't. I mean. I think that, I mean, so much of it is down to the history now, what's happened to it. Um, I mean, it's certainly got whatever it is, eight figures in it. So it's certainly 10 plus. I mean, I would think the 
and it also obviously depends which one you get. If you get a GTR that's been made road legal, um, and plenty of them have been, because they're that much rarer, they'll be worth even more. Um, I would think that I'd, I think you'd struggle to spend less than ten on one. I think you probably got yourself a proper bargain there. Um, and I can't imagine, other than the Lamore winner, I can't imagine there's one that's more valuable than XP5, which is the car that we had, uh, and we insured that for twenty five million. So yeah, like, that gives you a spread. Okay, that's quite a lot of money, isn't it? Um, well, but fine, okay, because the next car on our list, you could, I can't do the math quickly enough, but a fraction of, of that sum, in fact, you can get these maybe for three figures, right? You're going to be looking at a tatty one. Um, it's probably not going to, it might not be a runner, it might not look its best, but I reckon you could get a first gen MX-5 for sub £1,000, maybe 1500 quid, something like that. Something clinging to an MOT by the skin of yeah. his teeth. <laughs> but anyway, you know, so point being that the cars on our list are not necessarily difficult to get your hands on. And MX-5 is very easy to get your hands on. Um, and I reckon for, what, two, three, four grand, you're going to get a pretty tasty one. Nice one, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I think the Mark 1s are the nicest of the affordable ones. But I think Mark, Mark 2 is even cheaper than Mark 1s these days. Yeah, I think they are. Yeah. I mean, have you have you driven all generations? Yes, yeah, I have. So I I, I am interested. I mean, obviously, I was there um, at the time, and I can you know bang on about that if you like. But I, I'm just interested. As somebody who's, who sort of, kind of comes at it from the other direction, yeah. what you make of a of a Mark One MX Five? Does it feel like an old shed to you, or does it feel surprisingly together? No, surprisingly together. I mean, once you get over the, I mean, the cabin, it's going to be feel pretty dated now, isn't it? And things like the very, very small rim, slim rim to the steering wheel just immediately makes a car feel quite old to me. Um, but you can hammer them. You know, you can give them death. Strong engines. And they, they do love to be driven quite hard. And I think, I'm just reflecting on it um, as you were speaking, what I like about MX-5s is that it's driving almost in its purest form, almost, because they're light, they're small. It's fundamentally the right layout for a sports car. Roof comes off, it's rear drive, engine up front, manual box, um, good fizzy engines as well. Um, but, you know, it's it's almost driving in its purest form. Um, it is. But you've got a roof, you know, unlike a, a K-trim, you've got a proper roof that comes up. You've got some basic equipment, uh, you could really use it the way you would any other car, um, but still have at your disposal this thing that will allow you to tap into that old Evo tagline, the thrill of driving, right? You can really have a great time driving that car, skidding about in it or just driving it swiftly and uh, accurately. Um, and they're 1,500 quid or whatever they are. Yeah, I mean, it's nuts, isn't it? Um it's exactly what you say, Dan. If you put down your template of what you wanted a sports car to be, what you'd do is you'd sit down and you'd think, well, it must have a really sweet, um, normally aspirated up engine up front, you know, double wishbone suspension all around, um, engine running through, a lovely rifle bolt, to use the cliche, um, manual gearbox, um, driving the rear wheels, um, two-seat convertible, bang. Mm. Yeah. It's fundamentally and got, and, and, right, isn't it? It's fundamentally right, and you know, and this isn't rocket science. I mean, you, know, you, you you think of you know any, I don't know, pre-war, you know, MG or Aston Martin, or you think of you know the car which was clearly the 
inspiration for the MX-5, the Lotus Elan. Um, you know, there is a reason those cars were the way that they were. Um, it's because that's what gave you the best results from a pure driving point of view. Um, and it's, it's quite like the 911, isn't it? In the way that probably actually, I would say even more so in the way that its designers have stayed true to the original concept. I mean, if you go and drive a 1990 MX-5 and a 2020 MX-5, I think that anybody would be surprised by just how similar they are, just how much they share, um, because the philosophy behind both cars is absolutely identical. And it's so much more than just having, you know, an optimal layout. And actually, an awful lot of it is about keeping it really light. Um, but also what you were saying, just making sure you've got enough practicality. Um, the fact that you can throw the roof up or down in, you know, half the time it would take you to do it if it had, you know, heavy electric motors or anything like that. Uh, and then once it's up, it's, it's you know, you're, you're, you're warm and you're comfortable inside. You can go anywhere. Um, and they're fully connected these days. Um, but yeah, I mean, 30 years ago, it came along. And I can remember just thinking, well, what's the catch? You know, here is a car that, you know, looks like a Lotus Elan. It's beautifully balanced. It had a really lovely fizzy engine, the best gearbox you know, of its kind that I'd ever tried. Um, and yet it was made by, by Mazda, which is not a company that, you know, that we had really associated with that sort of thing at all. Um, and it was just, it was just, you know, genius from the get go. And affordable when new as well. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? I, I, okay, the affordability point is debatable, but there, I, I see some parallels with the Alpine because what the MX-5 did all those years ago was just take basic, fundamental, time-honoured principles and execute them in the right way with modern technology, modern safety, modern reliability. And it doesn't seem that complicated, does it, as a, as a blueprint? No. So why do you think, um, seeing as we're talking about 10-star cars, that the MX-5 captured... Okay, the MX-5 was never going to have done what it has gone on to do just appealing to the likes of you, me, and the people who listen to this podcast. It had, to, it did something else, didn't it? It's frankly, it, it, it appealed to people who probably weren't that interested in, you know, driving on the limit or exactly, you know, what the second or third gear change was like. Uh, it's, it, it, it somehow found a broader audience. And obviously, you know, some of that will be the fact that uh, it's a considerably cheaper car. But it became sort of cool and fashionable and, you know, a thing to be seen in, didn't it? In a way that, you know, wonderful though they are, uh, an A110 isn't. It might well be the, the cost point, you know, that's at the heart of that. Um, I, I suspect, like for like, when they, yeah, I mean, adjusted for inflation and so on, Probably the A110 is twice the price, isn't it? Yeah. No, I would. Well, I mean, well, yes. Well, it's twice the price of a new MX-5, isn't it? So, so, so yes. I, I and you know, I think an MX-5 costs. I don't know. This is how my brain works. I'm probably wrong, but a figure of fourteen thousand nine hundred and fifty price pounds is the as new price for a 1990 MX-5 has just floated into my head, and you know, I might be off by a few quid, but it won't be much. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, yeah, price is obviously a big, but but it, 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 maybe this is a subject of another podcast. But you know, there are certain cars, aren't there? Um, you know, nine elevens, Range Rovers, MX fives, that sort of thing, which uh, kind of gain a critical mass in the early part of their life, which propels them. It gives them a, the momentum just to sort of go on. And some cars, you know, and I'd say the MX five is probably as good an example of it as you will find, um, are so good 
that basically, instead of everybody else thinking, oh, we need a slice of that pie, we've got to you know, get in on that act, they actually run away. You, know, you, you think of how many true competitors that car has had. It had the final MR2, the Fiat Barchetta, the MGF, and not much else. It's a bit like Porsche Boxster syndrome, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, you, yeah, so, you know, and why did the Range Rover have it to it, basically the market to itself for such a long time? Um, I know that, you know, um, it's got, it's, it's not short of rivals now, but, you know, I, th- I think that's one of the ways that you kind of recognize a, a, a 1010 car, isn't it? Is that it's, it is so good. The rivals actually run away rather than try to nick a piece of its action. Um, so absolutely as worthy a recipient of a 10 out of 10 as, uh, as anything else we've been talking about. Good. Okay. Now we've already said that one of the main criteria, which is one of the two criteria for a 10 out of 10 is that it breaks new ground. And that perfectly describes the next car. Um, wasn't the first four wheel drive car, uh, but it was the first that sort of took it mainstream, wasn't it? I'm trying to work. Oh, I know what you're talking about. Uh, you're talking about you're t- sorry. You think I've got a list in front of me. Uh, that would be organized, wouldn't it? You're talking about the Quattro, aren't you? I am. Yeah. Um, 40 years uh, this year. 40 years. Um, you know, game changer. Absolutely no question about it at all. Um, uh, as you said, not the first four-wheel drive car. But, I mean, I think people thought the idea, you know, back then, um, in 1980. So, you know, I, I happen to have a 40-year-old Land Rover, which I banged on about before. Um, and that's got four-wheel drive. And it's very, very clunky. Uh, and to the extent you have to stop the car and press a, uh, a lever in the car, which engages four-wheel drive, and you use it because you absolutely because you'll get stuck if you don't and then as soon as you're out of your field or your forest or your bog or whatever you happen to be in you put it back into two-wheel drive because you wouldn't want to be going down the driving down the road in it and then audi comes along and actually you know deploys four-wheel drive in a completely different way um suddenly you know a four-wheel drive is a means of making not cars go faster but much more accessible and allowing people to enjoy their cars more of the time because you could take them out and they would perform particularly in, you know, in adverse conditions in a way that cars up until that moment just haven't been able to perform. And in that regard, absolutely, it changed the game. I drove uh, a 1981 car earlier this year. Uh, Audi UK have got one on the Heritage fleet. Um, and yes, you're right about the four-wheel drive system. Uh, effectively, Audi's engineers invented the centre diff, didn't they? Because until then, you had a big transfer box. Exactly um, right. And they came up with this very different solution that made it work for a road car that wasn't an off-road vehicle. Um, and it's, it, it's, it was really fun driving that car, actually, on some great roads in South Wales. Uh, and what struck me overall is how modern it felt. And I thought, this thing was designed probably during the late 1970s. Um, and if, you know, you could line up a whole load of other cars from that era, and I think a lot of them would feel hopelessly out of date. But I thought the Quattro just, it felt modern, and you could drive it like a modern car. Um, and what, 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 another thing that I found interesting about it was, you know, however good it was in 1981, they were clearly, Audi themselves were clearly still, you know, only just beginning to tap the potential of that of that concept. Because, you know, if you look at a quattro from the other end of that decade you know you go to one of the last ones um and suddenly it's not only got a 20 valve cylinder head and a low more power but it's got you know it's got a torsion differential um 
which suddenly made the whole business of power distribution between the axles uh, just move that game on completely and and you know drive one of those and you know although by that stage from like 1990 the interior is is, is looking pretty old and, and that sort of thing actually in terms of the dynamics um it's an amazing piece of work i mean it just goes to show the potential and obviously everything that audi and and, and others have gone on to do with four-wheel drive i mean i just thought would be a shout out for the r8 here um you know one of the really early mid-engine four-wheel drive cars um they um yeah they just showed that four-wheel drive could be used in a completely different way um and you know thank goodness for that because you think of you know the amount of modern really really fast cars because we're now getting to the stage um where cars are so much power they're so traction limited that without four-wheel drive um you know they, they they'd not be able to go anything like as, as fast as they do I'm glad you mentioned the original R8 because I've got one parked outside and I'm Have very you? much looking forward to having a go. Yeah, um, Again, chap. it's Audi's heritage fleet car. Uh, I'm having a blast in that tomorrow. That'd be good. Maybe we can talk about that next week. Um, but moving, we need to clip on a little bit because we've got through six of our 10 cars um, and we don't have a great deal of time left. So the next one, um, Yikes. Yeah, number, going. number seven on our list, uh, I've not driven one, but I've chased one. Uh, in another car along a great road. It was being driven by Jethro Bovingdon, and that tends to mean it's going bloody fast. Um, <laughs> and what I remember most was the sound yeah. of that V10. Yeah. People are going to think we're talking about the Carrera GT, aren't they? Unless well, we could still be talking about the Audi R8. True. Or a Dodge Viper. No, we wouldn't be talking about a Dodge Viper. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're we talking are, about we're, yeah, the Lexus LFA. Yeah, um, actually, I, I I would be okay. It's down there. It's down there as a ten ten, and I think it probably deserves it. Um, I love the LFA. It's probably is it my favourite Japanese car? Yeah, it is my favourite Japanese car, um, and and it's wonderful and everything else. If, if if I had to, if I were to say that there was one car on this lift which was a more of a marginal ten ten than the others, it's the LFA because I'm not really sure what game it changed, given what else was around when it came out. But my goodness, that engine, that yeah. engine, Yamaha was it? Was it Yamaha? Yamaha engine, yeah. Um, you know, whatever it was, five liter V ten revving to 9,000 revs. Um, and, you know, the LFA was a, you know, it was a very, very troubled beast. It was incredibly late. Um, you know, Toyota lost an enormous amount of money um, making the car. I think there was a time when we thought it was never going to happen because they'd been talking about it for so long. But my goodness, it was worth the wait. And this thing came out. Um, and it wasn't mid-engine, which I've always found quite interesting um and then when you got in it and you drove it you it was just heaven it was just you know that noise that searing shrieking howling v10 um and it was beautifully balanced and it was exquisitely put together i mean the car was so well built um i i and, and you know i just sat there and i just thought that the people who'd built this car i mean they were complete lunatics because they couldn't have had any eye on any kind of commercial reality whatsoever they were clearly always going to lose an enormous amount of money on everyone they made and it was just like they thought well we don't care about that we just want to make the best car we can um and so we're going to put the engine in what is quite a strange place for a car like that um at that time um we're going to make 
I mean, there are people who will tell you, I think Clarkson might be one of them, that that's the greatest road car engine that's ever been made. Um, and I'd need to think a bit about that before agreeing with him, but it would certainly be in my top five. It might even be in my top three. Um, and yeah, I mean, out of nowhere came this car and it was, you know, utterly memorable, utterly gorgeous and yeah, wonderful. I mean, it wasn't perfect by any means. A tiny fuel tank, that sort of robotized manual gearbox that it had wasn't very good. Um, but in the right conditions on a really, I know you need a really good road or ideally the Nürburgring, um, it was just sensational. Yeah, do you remember for a few years, a bunch of Japanese engineers and racers would come over to the N24 with an LFA and yeah. just rip around the track for 24 hours. And it, it, was, it sounded fantastic, that sort of hollow wailing sound. Yes. You just couldn't get enough of it. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's, a, it's a car. If I sort of think back at the cars that I've driven um, and those that I would just really really liked driving i mean you know for instance there are, there are some amazing cars like porsche 918 spiders and i is, is an example a car that actually i thought was much better than i thought it was going to be uh, and i was much more impressed by it but you know i it's a kind of car that in my head i can park um i would get so much more excited about getting back in an lfa than that um it just had a sort of a joy about it, an enthusiasm, a, just a love for the open road or track that is very, very rare to find in, in any car. Um, and Lexus have got one in the UK, haven't they? And I know that it used to get loaned out a bit and I don't think it does anymore. So maybe you and I need to sit down and have a really, yeah. really good idea and go <laughs> and do something with it. Let's do it. Um, okay, so let's move on. I, I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about number eight, and you won't know what that is, but I'll tee you up. Um, we bleat on about this car almost endlessly, so we'll whip through the original Porsche 911 quite quickly. Um, yeah, so, so briefly uh, talk about some of the, the virtues from a driving point of view. What, what made it so good to drive? Uh, well, if you're talking about very early cars, I mean, I, I don't think a car's ever had a more... Um, undeserved reputation than the early 911 which you know basically it poisoned people's view of the car for decades to come in fact um, there were some 911s which were tricky to drive but they tended to be the sort of the 1980s ones which tended to have you know very mismatched front and rear wheel sizes and um, and could do some slightly strange things the early cars were just I mean basically what the early 911 did is it set the template for what um that car is to this day which is the most fun car you can use for pretty much any reason you could imagine yeah that's and not that, changed that, is it no that's not changed and, and and that's been it that's been the proposition from the get-go here is a car which is absolutely from you know down to its boots a driver's car that's what it's here for um and yet this is a car in which not only can you go and sit in heavy traffic and sit on motorways and go about your daily business in but you should because that's what it's designed to do. Um, and, and actually, it took a bit of time to catch on. I mean, I think people must think that, you know, Porsche have always been able to sell as many 911s as they could have made, particularly in the early days. It wasn't really like that. And, you know, they had to do sort of the poverty spec models, you know, the 912 with the four-cylinder engine and the 911T, which had, you know, a very detuned um, 110-horsepower engine, um, just to, you know, just to keep the numbers up. Um, so it wasn't like it was an overnight sensation, 
Um, but it was over time. And once they started, you know, um, spreading the love a bit and getting this name out there, particularly through rallying, particularly, you know, when they started doing race versions of that sort of thing. And then people, you know, once they realized these cars weren't going to mug them. And, and the problem with those early cars was they did have to be driven in a certain way. And as long as you obeyed the rules, then they were fine. But the rules were a bit different. I mean, you, you know, if you went barreling into a wet corner a bit too quick and you braked hard, um, you weren't going to come out of it. And that was just the way it is. So you always applied the, and it's, you know, they're very, very good these days, but still, you know, I, I drove a cup car about a year ago. Um, and it, this was a brand new 2019 you know, Porsche racing car, but it felt like a sort of short wheelbase FIA 1965 car in so far as exactly that, you know, you still, if you went into a corner too fast and suddenly realized you had to slow down in a hurry, you were in all sorts of strife. But if you were quite conservative with your entry speed and got your foot down nice and early, got the weight over the back where the engine is and just used the traction, um, you'd come out of the corner like a cork out of the bottle. And it was the same in 1965 and it was the same in, in, in 2019. So, yeah, so, so, so that's what it's about, isn't it? It's just about uh, a unique driving experience powered by a flat six engine in a package that is absolutely unburstable, entirely practical as long as you don't need to carry more than two people um, and just wonderful at everything that you want it to do. Yeah, so it's sort of usability um, that it pioneered as much as anything, don't you think? It was reliable, effortless, more practical than other cars, but still fantastic to drive. Um, Okay, let's move on. Number nine. Now we can talk, and you can rhapsodise about this car without people accusing you of talking up the values because you don't have one any longer. No, I've sold it. (laughs) Uh, So so tell us why the 205 GTI is a 10 out of 10. Um, Why the 205 GTI? Because... Okay, I'll tell you why it is. Well, why it's 10 out of 10. I'm going to slightly vary the rules here because it's not... Okay, so we said at the beginning, didn't we, that just being the best in your class at the time wasn't enough. Um, but I think if over time, so over generation after generation after generation, you're still the best, um, yeah, then, yeah. I th- then I think that qualifies. I think, I think you can claim to have changed the game in that historical perspective. And the Peugeot 205 GTI, certainly to me, uh, even though I don't have one anymore, uh, is a car that did that. I still, you know, when I think of, uh, um, goodness knows, this isn't an original thought, but when I think of the greatest hot hatchbacks of all time, um, you know, there are lots of candidates, um, but to me, it's it's the 205 GTI. And um, because it was... It just did everything incredibly well. And these cars, these aren't sports cars. These aren't sort of dedicated you know road weapons these are cars which people like the 911 i guess you know still do have to use every single day and it was spacious and it had a big boot and it was reliable um but at the same time it was also light it was powerful and it had this most ridiculous balance it was a front wheel drive car that basically wanted to oversteer everywhere um and yeah it just it was one of those cars that you know it did have quite clever rear suspension um and you know it was a good looking car and it had lots of attributes but even if you laid them all out individually on the table and thought to yourself if you stuck those together you'd think you get a pretty sound car out of it but it was one of those cars that somehow turned out to be you know greater than the sum of what you'd expect its parts to uh, amount to and i think for that reason it's it's just one of those cars, isn't it? I think it's one of those cars that people will be talking not just decades from now, but centuries from now. 
Yeah, and it's it's still influential now. And I think if it's influential all these years later, it has to have changed the game somewhere, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, okay, well, f- f- number 10, finally. Another hot hatch, another, another GTI. Quite a different sort of car, though. Um, I've got one of these coming next week, actually, as well. So I'm really looking forward to... Yeah, I know. I'm getting, rattling through some good old stuff at the moment. Dan goes uh, down memory lane. Good on exactly, you. Exactly. And it's, it's because... Um, well, it's for a video, but I loved these cars in period, and I haven't driven one for 10 years, uh, which seems balmy, really. New, uh, Mark V VW Golf GTI. Um, great cars to drive. They handle beautifully. They steer really well. I always loved the seating position because you're on the deck and you feel that you've got acres of headroom. Um, I always... And it's strong performance from a, a really effective engine... Uh, but you've got all that combined with such good usability, practicality, overall refinement. Um, it looks elegant, particularly compared to like a bright orange Focus ST or something. Um, I remember describing it once as it's Saturday night and Monday morning. Very good. Very good. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, if, can, I, can I add two, th- two things to that? Um, Tartan seats. Uh, Tartan seats. No, it wasn't going to be either of those. Um, I, I think it. Did, I, I think it did one. It, it, it did one thing. It did us all a favour in that it restored um, credibility to the Golf GTI. Um, you know, because if you remember the Mark III and the Mark IV. So this is the Mark. This is the this is the Mark V Golf GTI we're talking about. Um, and two, two, 2005 is that right around there? 2005 exactly yeah uh, and you know I think everybody knows that the one and two are pretty great uh, and the three was absolutely horrendous and the four not much better uh, and this was Volkswagen going okay guys yeah fair enough yeah we we, we cocked it up um, but we haven't forgotten we do now do this um, and you know this is this is what we think um, and you know and since then well okay we have some reservations don't we about the series eight uh which has only just come out um but yeah i mean it just spawned an entire generation of great golf gt great golf gti's and and, and i would say and this might surprise some people that of all generations of golf gti it's not the first or even the second that's the greatest i think it's the five i think it's i think that's the car that to me best does what i want a car like that to do and the second thing i was going to say is they're so cheap (laughs) <laughs> three grand um, i was looking yeah exactly um might not be a nice I, one but yeah no but if you spend five you'll get yeah. a minter won't you and what a car for five grand yeah what a car for five grand um compelling and, isn't it? And, and, and i love it for that but you know because you know you can't see these things well some of these cars you can see in isolation because you have to like mclaren f1s um but you know, when you're talking about cars that were built in very large numbers, you know, for mass consumption, you know, the fact that they are so accessible to so many people um, today, at least, um, has to be a point in their favour. And I think, you know, I think that if you went and got, um, and you spent, you know, a reasonable amount of money getting getting the nicest one that you could find, I think, in, you know, as long as you didn't go and put a load of miles on it, um, I think it'd look after you in time. Because I think they're the sorts of cars that people are just, you know, probably because, you know, people like you and I bang on about them a bit. But I think they're the sort of cars that people are starting to wake up to and thinking that these things are quite affordable. Um, And I guess also that, you know, although they're pretty tough, you know, they are quite old cars now. You know, they are, they're, what, 15 years old and lots of them would have, you know, 
been bent or just worn out or whatever. So there may not be that enormous a number of cars left. And I can just see it being one of those cars. I don't think they're ever going to be worth millions, but I think it's just one of those cars that you could have and enjoy um, and really, really cherish. And you know, when the day comes when it needs to go to somebody else, you'd suddenly decide to discover that it would cost you really very little. And isn't that great? That is great. Yeah, 10 great cars. That's our list of 10, 10s out of 10 or something. Um, so we've got, I've got a, a longer, a long list here um, with cars that we didn't include in our top 10, but you could probably make a case for, or they're very close to qualifying. Um, and I'll just run through a few of them because, or all of them actually, because it'll just sort of help contextualize even further this rating systems that, system that we've got. Um, so we've got original R8, 2004 Ford GT, Caterham 7, we'd have to pick one out. Um, I've put the Ferrari 458 Speciale on there. I know yeah, Andrew will, will disagree. Okay, we'll come back to that. Um, we've also got Mustang e Yeah, hang on. Wait, wait, wait. Just, just, just hold that. It's a Mustang. <laughs> Why is that not in the top 10? You're the original pony car. You know, you think, you think of basically every you know, decent driver's car that's come out of America in the last 56 years. They owe it all to the Mustang. Um, and frankly, I'm shocked and appalled um, that it's not in the top. Can we have a top and 11? I, I'd stick the Mustang in there all day long. No, you're going to have Sorry. to take one out if you want the Mustang in. Fine, take the Mark 5 Golf out. Oh, interesting. You've just been bleating on about it for five minutes, and now you're doing I it know, out to service. You, okay. you know, man's allowed to change his mind. Fair enough. Okay, so <laughs> Mustang. We've also got the E-Type 2003 Rolls-Royce Phantom 1970 Range Rover. Um, Aston V12 Vantage. I was surprised to see that on your list, actually, but I, I love just, that car. I, I, it's I, 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 and I'm talking about. I'm not talking actually talking about the you know the the last ones, the you know the the, the V12 Vantage, but the you know what are they are the sort of the 2009 one, um, the first of the manual V12 Vantages, um, you know, and you can you and you can pick them up for sixty seventy grand now, uh, and they're really rare, um, and they're such special cars. Anyway, go on. Okay, 1957 Fiat 500. Oh, you've got one Obviously. of those. That's, that's coincidence. Um, <laughs> 1990 Merc S-Class, 1948 Land Rover, original Land Rover, and I've put the McLaren 675LT uh, on there. So, hang on. Def- um, definitely, definitely the 675LT should yeah. be on there. Let me just say, um, thank you all for listening, and so support us on Patreon, please, patreon.com forward slash drive nation, rate and review the podcast, and subscribe to the podcast, and Andrew, you've got a minute to tell us why the Ferrari 458 Speciale shouldn't be anywhere near this list. Because a 458 is a much better car than Speciale, okay? A Speciale is about 10% better on the track, and about 80% worse everywhere else. A 458 is such a wonderful car because it goes back to what we've been talking about it's the fact that you can use it it has this incredible engine that goes to 9000 and everything else but it's also it rides beautifully um and it's quiet enough to go and do a big distance i can remember doing a big distance in a 458 special and one kill it at the end because it was so uncomfortable and it was so noisy and yes there are very specific occasions in which it is more fun to drive than a 458 um, but for almost all people, almost all the time, a 458 is a better car. There you go. Okay, would you put a 458 on the list? I'd think very hard about it. Mm. Uh, very, Interesting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, well, but, but, but again, you know, what would you take off? Okay, so at this stage, I think we'd have to take off an LFA. And no, I wouldn't put a 458 on yeah. if it meant taking the LFA off. So uh, okay. the answer is I'd like to, but I can't. 
Okay, good. Well, I've already done all the uh, all the nonsense at the end. So thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you, one and all. I look forward to catching up with you again this time next week. The Drive Nation podcast with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel. 